Hey, Libre Lounge listeners. Serge had to drop out partway through this episode, so that's just a heads up so you aren't wondering why suddenly it sounds like it switched to just me on the interviewer end. Anyway, we're really excited about this episode. Ludovic is a really great speaker and kind communicator, and it was a real treat having him on. Geeks is a really interesting topic, and yes, true to its name, we get pretty geeky in a good way in this episode, I think. Hope you enjoy. Welcome to Libre Lounge, a podcast about free software, free culture, and all the other interesting aspects of user freedom. With Christopher Lemmer Weber and Serge Broklowski. Hey, Chris. Hey, Serge. So it's a rare opportunity that things we talk about in this show kind of come together. And we've had discussions about reproducible builds when we talked about some of the issues in NPM. We've talked about uh, GNU and free software pretty much every episode. I think we've talked a little bit about Lisp. Um, But here we have an opportunity uh, as this week, uh, GNU Geeks hit 1.0, and we are lucky enough to be joined by Ludovic Cortez, the, um, the founder of Geeks. So, welcome. Hello. <laughs> welcome to the show, Ludo. It's very exciting to have you on. Yay. It's an honor to be here. So, uh, you know, there's so much that we can uh, unpack about GNU Geeks and, and why it's unique. I mean, I think all everybody who does a podcast about Linux and GNU Linux talks about, you know, uh, distributions and package managers and all that. And I think we'll we'll get to that. But I, I think the the vitally important part about GNU Geeks is um, that it's not just another distribution, but it has some serious differences between its itself and let's say the Debian project or even Red Hat or some of these others. So maybe we want to start with, from your perspective, what makes it distinct? Right. So I guess, yeah, I mean, like you said, we we talk a lot about package managers and like we've known dozens of package managers in our lives. So why yet another one? That's one what one might th- think. And... Uh, yeah, I think we've been doing something different. So technically, it's it's a so-called functional package manager, but maybe that doesn't tell a lot to many people. Uh, what makes a difference to you as a, as a user is that it's transactional, which means that you know you can install software, you can upgrade software, and if something goes wrong, you can always roll back. Mm-hmm. And to me, it really means a lot, you know, to have the the guarantees that if something goes wrong, then I can roll back. Um, but then there are other technical differences, like uh, I, I used this phrase in, in a talk of mine uh, at Fosdom. I said, you know what, Geeks is like the Emacs of distros. And <laughs> Chris was saying, yeah, maybe you're right, but you know, to many people, it doesn't you know, mean a lot. What does it mean to be the Emacs of distros? <laughs> and I think Chris has a point. <laughs> so... What what I wanted to say is that it's it's meant to be hackable, so it's written in Scheme, which is itself a dialect of Lisp. Uh, you can really inspect the whole distribution. You know, you can see not only how packages are made. You can you can obviously rebuild them very easily, and you can also you know navigate the whole distro just like you would do in any editor or IDE when you navigate code. And so you can see how everything is, you know, glued together. And my hope is that the way this is structured with just a single language and just a set of well-defined programming interfaces, my hope is that people can easily dive in, you know. You don't have to dive in, but hopefully if you want to, you can see how things work together. Yeah, I think... I yeah. think you've raised something important there with the uh, um, the transactional part, um, and I think to make it a little bit clearer for people who who might not, uh, I think let me try to unpack what I think you mean by that. Um, a lot of our viewer or listeners are probably familiar with Git, and in many ways, 
uh, Geeks and uh, like Nix uh, has the nice property that um, it kind of turns your entire operating system or um, package manager into um, kind of Git, uh, being like Git in that if something goes bad, you can always just roll back in time. Would you say that's a pretty accurate way of phrasing that? Right, yes, exactly. Sure. And that's that's pretty unique. And it's also like Git in the sense that it, it's actually, I mean, the whole distro turns out to be in a single Git repo too. <laughs> so, yeah, there, there's a lot you can navigate the history. And of course, when you're using Git, you can also navigate the history of what you installed, what you upgraded, and, you know, you can roll back and everything. And there's something else that you said that I think is is important from a cultural perspective, which is that for people on more proprietary operating systems, they may be used to just having, you know, being given their system, right? It comes mm -hmm. out of the box and the new feature is whatever it is. And so everyone goes, oh, it's great, it's the new feature. Or maybe they hate the new feature, but, but, that's, but that's what you get. And right. in the free software world, we're used to a very different approach where you, it's almost like you accumulate the system as you know, as time goes on, you're like, well, I like, I want this command to do this thing that's not standard, or I want this to look a certain way, and I want this to behave a, a way. And and over time, the way your system behaves may not look anything or act uh, anything like uh, it did when you first got it, or a brand new system, or maybe your neighbor's same version of the same quote unquote operating system. And what's interesting here is that this idea of hackability is is interesting to me because you're kind of taking that what is normally just user configuration and you're applying it to the entire system right yeah exactly what's pretty unique i mean so, so maybe people know about nixos which is you know quite famous these days um and the the pretty unique feature that nixos brought back in the day that you can basically describe your whole operating system configuration in a single file. So you can say like every, you know, file system partition, every user account, every service that you want to run, everything is declared in one file. And then you can instantiate that, which means, you know, install the system, deploy the operating system. And with Geeks, we're actually trying to take it a bit further, which is that you know, your configuration file happens to be purely declarative, but it's also actual code, right? So at a, as a user, you don't need to know that it's code. I mean, at least initially, I would say it, it really looks very declarative. It could pretty much be JSON or YAML if you want. But the thing is, it's actually code, so you can easily dive in, like follow, you know, you realize you're actually manipula manipulating objects and functions in the scheme programming language. And so you, could, you can look up the APIs and see what else they offer. You can start you know, fiddling with your configuration. You can write, let's say, functions that modify an operating system configuration to add such or such feature. And I think overall, that makes it quite easy to navigate the whole thing and to you know customize it and to eventually also get to learn about the the internals of the system so so you touched on something interesting there which is you you mentioned that uh that you know that geeks is very hackable um by kind of treating i'd say you know it, it geeks kind of takes seriously the idea that um your operating system in your your package manager you know kind of is a program right uh and um, and, and it seems to me that that's the distinction uh, between Geeks and Nix. And actually, we've gotten a number of people who have commented on this show before saying, ah, Chris, you keep talking about Geeks and you haven't talked about Nix. And, you know, um, and I have some bias there um, because I've been involved in Geeks and not Nix. Um, but I, I, I think I, I got involved in Geeks partly for the same reasons that um, you started Geeks. Um, and I think maybe not everybody realizes, but you had history going back to um, the development of Nix, right? So so what what led, could you tell us a bit more about that story of the, the transition from your work on Nix to your work on Geeks? Yeah. Yeah, so, well, I mean, I was really amazed by the work by Elko Dolstra, you know, uh, the, the founder of Nix, in his thesis where he 
very well explained the, the problem with software deployment in general and also came up with a solution which is based on functional programming which is just i mean to me it was a, a revelation so to speak <laughs> it was really something new and i really advise you to read these papers i mean there's a, a couple of papers by elko dalster which are about you know the foundation of nix and it's really inspiring and so yeah, I started contributing to Nix, and I, I think I've I contributed for like maybe four years. And at the same time, I was also very much into Scheme and into GNU Guile, uh, which I was co-maintaining together with Andy Wingo and Mark River. And so somehow, you know, I felt like, you know, something needed to be done to sort of like join these two things. And... I was also much frustrated about the use of um, you know a specific language in Nix. So yeah, maybe I need to explain a bit more. It, it turns out that Nix, is, so it's it's a package manager, but it uses its own language to define packages. It's a very it's an interesting language, functional language, but it's you know it's very specific also, and it's very limited. It's a domain-specific language, meaning that it's been designed specifically to write uh, package definitions. And so when you want to do a bit more, you have to resort to an external language, typically. So for example, if you look at the package definition in Nix, it's usually a mixture of the Nix language plus bash snippets and sometimes additional languages. And to me, that's that's a bit problematic because that means that it's it's a bit harder to follow because you have to know several languages. You have to understand how code is generated in a different language, for example. And it's also quite limiting if you want to design tools that work with packages, for example. So I think at the time I, I wrote a script that would automatically update package definitions uh, in the Nix package collection. But to do that, I had to first convert, you know, the whole set of packages that's written in the Nix language to convert that to XML and then to parse that huge XML tree and from there on to actually work on the XML tree. And well, long story short, it's it's pretty tedious to do and pretty inefficient. And I thought, well, why don't we do everything in the same language? Uh, so, I mean, I think that that is a good argument to make that, um, I mean, Geeks has been picking up a lot of features very fast. Some of them um, that Nix didn't even have, uh, such as, and I guess we could explain what it, it means. But for example, Mark Weaver's work on graphs to, to pat to do faster security updates and um, David Thompson's work on uh, the the like geeks environment and the virtual machine tools and stuff like that. And I think that um, it's been my experience. And I think that this, I think that it, you agree Ludo that, uh, um, that having uh, packages just be a data type inside of the language means that uh, the, the, the barrier to writing tools is actually very low. Um, but it, would would that is that a good summary of what you're saying in some ways, or, or yes, what do you think? Yes, that's a very good summary. Uh, I was really pleased when people started writing these kind of tools, like what David did with um, Geeks Environment and with containers, and also what Alex Cost did with the Emacs interface. So yeah. I mean, like Alex designed a, a user interface that runs in Emacs using Geeks, so you can install packages in Emacs if that's your thing. But the, the important point here is that it was pretty easy to write that yeah, that user interface because if you write scheme code, then Geeks and the whole package collection is just a scheme library, and so you can you can navigate packages and you can pretty easily write you know, a new user interface on top of that. And to me, that was, yeah, like a sign that it actually works. I mean, that using, a, a, you know, a generic programming language actually allows people to write these kind of tools. And that's pretty cool, I think. So that you just mentioned that, you know, the Emacs interface and kind of the command line tools that have been built and stuff like that. And this... uh um 
And and actually, I feel like that's a good chance to transition to Geeks 1.0 and some of the major features of it, because I think that that, um, you know, so one of my friends, uh, uh, Ava, made a joke to me that was uh, Geeks is Gentoo for adults. And, uh, <laughs> um, I, and, and, you know, and I actually, you know, I really enjoyed back in the day learning how to do what was called a stage one Gentoo install, where you you know, kind of uh, did all the steps manually by hand. And it was kind of a, a wave of nostalgia for me when I, you know, installed the the Geek's uh, uh, um, USB stick and, and had to do all these commands manually. <laughs> but I also kind of realized that that's not for everybody. So I believe that Geek's 1.0, one of its major features of this release is something addressing that. So, so do you want to speak to that? Yes, yeah, sure. So... Yeah, like you said, installing the standalone Geeks distribution on your laptop was pretty tedious until now. So like you had, like you said, you would you would boot into that USB key and then you had to type a number of commands, which is, you know, okay if you're familiar with GNU Linux, but still pretty tedious and obviously not for everyone. So one of the of the big news in that in that space in 1.0 is the installer so we have a text mode graphical installer so, so basically if you've ever installed debian for example you have you know all these dialog boxes that allow you to install the whole system and pretty similar spirits except that at the end the installer generates a, a configuration file which is the the declaration of your whole operating system configuration. So the the end result of that installer is the configuration of your system as a single file, which is pretty cool. So as a user who is not familiar with Geeks, you just it's I think it's quite easy to install it thanks to this installer. And um, yeah, and you still. At the end, you get to see what it's like to declare the whole operating system configuration. So that's pretty cool. And we owe it to Mathieu Otash. I'm not sure if I pronounced the name right, but that's really, really an amazing uh, piece of work that uh, Mathieu has been doing here. Yeah, so um, I, I think this it's also a good opportunity to discuss why Scheme, like why not... For example, and, you know, maybe Python isn't that functional, but, you know, if we, uh, you know, some sort of language, you know, that that maybe is more popular syntactically like Python, um, I think that the installer, you you gave a bit of a hint there as in terms of what the kind of thing that like Scheme is really good for um, in that writing out the file thing. And, and uh, could you expand on that? Like what what is the why might we choose um, a lispy language over um, something that's kind of a bit more conventionally accepted syntactically. Yeah. So I, I guess one of the main reasons initially that I was very much into Scheme. So that's that's like a, an emotional or a subjective reason, probably. <laughs> but technically, there I think there are also very good reasons to choose Scheme, to choose a Lisp in general for that kind of stuff. So. Lisp is often described as a programmable programming language, meaning that it's not, you know, it's not a fixed set of language constructs. It's not a fixed set of features. You can always extend it with new programming language constructs and things like that. So what it, what it means is that if you compare to a more traditional programming language like Python or C, maybe where you have you know a very fixed syntax which cannot be extended or hardly be extended i would say well usually you would have to resort to additional programming languages to do domain specific things and that's that's the reason the reason for example why nix itself is written in c++ but the Nix language is, is a different language because it would be too hard in C++, I guess, to, to define, you know, packages, for example. In Scheme, you can just define new constructs. So, for example, we have um, some sort of a language, a domain-specific language to define packages. We also have, um, maybe the language is too strong of a word, but you know, syntactic constructs which are lightweight, which are similar to what you would write in, in JSON or in a declarative way that allow you to, exp you know, to define packages and operating system configurations. 
And so you get sort of the both of both worlds, the best of both worlds, which means that you have a very high-level declarative uh, way to represent packages, yet it's an actual scheme object. So it's, yeah, we've, we've been able to basically extend not just the, the APIs that we provide, but really the, some, you know, some of the syntax of the language. It also means that doing something like having the installer write out the config as scheme code is not too difficult because Lisp is kind of optimized for that in that like the, the language itself, you're kind of looking at its data structure. So generating scheme code to write out to a configuration file is actually code that writes code is, is pretty trivial in a Lisp. Right, exactly. And, and code generation actually happens quite a lot in, in Geeks. Because, for example, we use Scheme not just to define packages, but also to write all the plumbing to build the package. So, you know, for example, if you have a package, probably you're going to build it using maybe configure make make install or python setup.py, that kind of stuff. And all this plumbing is also written in Scheme, which means that at some point we have, you know, a, a bit of, of Scheme that's used by your command line interface and that define packages, but it, it's also generating more scheme code that will actually run when you build the package. And that pattern you know, happens in different places in Geeks. Like for example, we're also using um, the init system, PID1, you know, the, the first program that starts when the operating system boots. Uh, it, it's also written in scheme. And so it's configured again in Scheme. So that means we have to generate those Scheme files that configure like system services, for example. Um, like you said, Scheme and Lisp lends itself very well to this kind of, um, of operation. What's the difference between Geeks as a package manager versus Geeks as a distribution? Uh -huh. What's the difference? Well, so... Um, yeah, we, we tend to describe Geeks as a package manager because that's, I guess that was the initial application, so to speak. But nowadays it's really, it's more than that. It's really a toolbox, I would say, for software deployment in general. So everything that has to do with, you know, deploying a, a single package or a complete software environment or an operating system, that's what Geeks does. And so it's all pretty much entangled. So you, you can use Geeks as a as a package manager, you know, plain plain like apt. How would you pronounce it? Apt-get, I guess, uh, on top of your distribution, and that's fine. That's what many people do. But you can also install uh, Geeks as a standalone distribution, like you would install Debian on your machine. And so if you use Geeks as a standalone distribution, then that's when you get that declarative uh, configuration uh, mechanism. So at that point, you basically declare your complete operating system configuration in one file. And then you have a command that is called Geek system that basically can consume that operating system configuration and then reconfigure your machine to actually run that operating system. But the really nice thing is that you can also say, all right, I have my operating system configuration file, but I want to generate a virtual machine, for example, and to test my configuration in a virtual machine. And then you can do Geek System VM that's going to produce an, a virtual machine that runs your operating system. So that's that's pretty convenient Like when when you want to test new changes like you want to add a new system service and you want to see what it's like if it's working as expected. Well, that's that's what it's for. You can just do Geek System VM and you get a virtual machine running that configuration. And so that's that's really, so to answer your question, the distribution is really going a step further. So you have, you have the package manager, that's one thing, and then you have the distribution, which is the next level. And I should say that in between, you have also Geeks Environment, which we mentioned before, which is sort of a middle ground in a way because it's it's about managing um, software environments, so typically a set of packages. And on top of that, we also have additional tools. So like you can 
So I mentioned virtual machines, but you can also create a Docker image that contains your operating system. And you can also create a Docker image containing just a, uh, just a set of packages with uh, Geeksback. Uh, roughly everything that has to do with software deployment can be handled by this single toolset. And I think that's quite unique, you know, we're used to having different tools for each one of these categories. Like you have one tool to, um, you know, to provision containers, you have one tool to provision virtual machines, uh, you know, different tools for each of these, these technologies. And here we have a single tool set that, that knows about software packages and that's able to actually make all these different artifacts. That's pretty pretty useful, I think, pretty convenient. To expand on what the functional system means, it seems like, you know, if you've got, um, let's say package foo depends on, you know, packages bar and baz and those change, it's going to make a new version of foo, right? Yeah. Okay, so, so how does that lead into, I know you've been doing work on both uh, reproducible builds uh, or the Geeks team has been doing work on reproducible builds and there's also work on uh, bootstrapability um, and maybe you want to expand on what those mean? Yeah, so um, there's a reproducible builds effort actually that's on reproducible-builds.org that's led mostly by Debian developers who initiated the effort. Uh, so what's a reproducible build? Well, a reproducible build is a build that allows you to make sure that the, the binary artifacts that you're getting, that you're actually running on your system, actually correspond to some specific source code. And it sounds trivial, but you know, most of the time, if you if you receive a binary, like if you download a, a Java archive on the internet, or if you install a package with your you know package manager on your distro, then you're getting a big binary and it's pretty hard to tell that the binary really corresponds to the source code that it's supposed to correspond to. And so it's really, initially, it's really a, a security issue, which is that if I install, let's say, Debian packages on my machine, uh, how can I tell that I'm actually running the software that I, I wanted to install in the first place? How can I tell that it doesn't have any backdoors? Well, Debian, and, and actually we should throw in, Debian is, your the Geeks community is collaborating with Debian on, on that front though, right? Right, yeah. And, and with other, other distros as well. But Debian has really been leading the way uh, on that effort. And so th the thing is, we need to be able to verify that the binary that we get as users actually correspond to, to some specific source code, you know? Uh, if we are not able to verify that, then there's no security because, you know, you could be running any piece of software. It could contain backdoors. And it's also a problem for user freedom. I mean, as a user, I'm supposed to have the freedom to study and modify the software. But if I'm not even sure that the software that I'm running really corresponds to the source I have at hand, then that's that's a serious issue. And so that's what people are trying to address in the reproducible build effort. Right. Now, yeah, now I think Nix and Geeks are, are in a very special situation in, in that effort. So this is all, I mean, we're standing on the shoulders of giants and of Nix in particular here, um, because Nix pioneered the so-called functional um, packaging, uh, package deployment model. And that's that's very, very unique. I mean, it's designed with reproducibility in mind, so to speak. And what does that mean? Well, I mean, if you if you look at how Nix and Gix uh, build packages, it's it's pretty different from what's being done by other distros. So typically in in Nix and, and Gix, when you're starting a package build, it's setting up an isolated environment. For the, for the build itself, and that environment contains only the dependencies of the package and nothing else. That means that if you, Chris, for example, build uh, some package, Inkscape, on your laptop, and I build the very same thing on my laptop, because they are isolated, then we're going to have the probably the same result. Now, I say probably because there can be, you know, sources of non-determinism, like 
something in, in the package build process could uh, lead to different outputs in spite of that isolated environment. But in general, that's that's very that's a very good way to get the assurance that you're going to have reproducible builds by default, right? Does that make sense? Yeah, that makes sense. Uh, <laughs> yeah, no, no. So, uh, so if we can really, it's kind of saying if we can play back, um, if we can play back what we want to build and all the things we want to build it with, we can we can really get very precisely knowledge that we get the same thing out on the other side and uh and that that can help us escape uh some of the you know kind of uh dangers of somebody you know saying oh hey look you know here's this binary and then you know and you're like oh okay i'm this this is probably the right thing and then but somebody might have injected something malicious in it right right um but there's there's one more but you know so it's you can kind of go all the way down with this right and if we get all the way down to the bottom um of that you know making sure that you know uh it, python it, that you know django is built with uh um, reproducibility and then uh the and then python's built reproducibly uh, reproducibly and then you know glibc is built reproducibly except wait a minute there's some sort of point at which we have to use something to build up the rest of the system and that's where the bootstrapping conversation comes in right <laughs> yeah definitely yeah, so reproducible builds is all about making sure that when you actually build something, you get you know reproducible build results, reproducible binaries. Uh, but like you're saying, the the elephant, there, there's an elephant in the room, which is that at some point, usually there's a big binary blob because you need to start from somewhere. And so um, Gix was no exception. I mean, if you looked at the dependency graph of all the packages, you took the compiler GCC and then it depended on glibc, which itself depended on a different variant of GCC. And at some point, everything was depending on, on pre-compiled versions of GCC, glibc, binutils, and so on and so forth. And that's that's a problem, I think. That's a problem because it means we have this big set of binaries at the root of our dependency graph. And it's pretty much impossible to audit these binaries. I mean, we're talking about 500 megabytes, something like that. And so that's very big. So the good thing with, with Geeks is that at least we have a very clear dependency graph. We could see in the dependency graph, all these big binaries. Uh, whereas on, on traditional distros, it's it's a bit more fuzzy. Like, it's pretty hard to tell what the what the set of bootstrap binaries is. So this is where Ma the Mace project comes in, right? Exactly. So Yannicke and a bunch of other hackers, um, I mean, have done an amazing job. So when we started Geeks, actually Geeks had a section in the documentation describing what I just described. So saying, you know what, this is all depending on a, on a big set of binaries, but now you know, <laughs> now you know that this is how it is made. Uh, but we know it's not great because it's not source code, right? It's just binaries. And so we'd like to do something. And Yannicker was inspired and actually started working on this. And it's a pretty hard issue because we're talking about building a C compiler. So the problem that Yannicke set to, to solve was how do we build that initial GCC and glibc with something that is smaller? And that's, that's pretty tough, you know? So when Yannicke started working on it, uh, that was, I don't know, two years ago, I would say. Yeah, we I think like, about that. Yeah, I was like, this this is awesome, but it's it's really going to be hard. Uh, I was like, yeah, it's great that you're tackling this problem, but we know that yeah, we don't we didn't even know how exactly that could happen. Uh, but yeah, but Yannick, well, let's let's describe the the actual problem that's trying to be solved, right? There, we've mentioned it before on the show, but there's something called the Thompson attack, which is basically you could put a, a evil thing inside of your compiler that says the next time I build a compiler, 
I'm going to put an evil thing inside of it, even if the compiler's source code doesn't have that, right? So, like, it's basically you inject this evil thing that you then never know kind of continues to exist there into the future. Is that a good basic summary of that? Yeah, right. I should have started by explaining this. But, yeah, the, the Thompson attack is, is really... That, that's the whole issue. So, yeah, like you're saying, in, this, in those 500 megabytes, we have GCC... And what if that GCC actually has a backdoor built in and is able to propagate that backdoor in the binaries that it produces? And that's a Thompson attack. Uh, it means that, you know, that backdoored compiler could propagate the backdoor again and again and we'd be unable to notice. And yep. that's, yeah, that's a pretty big deal. So, so if I, I, I want to see if I remember how Mace tries to solve this problem is basically you have a scheme program that can uh, build a small, that can run a uh, very small C compiler and a very small C compiler that can build a, uh, that, that can build a scheme program, uh, a scheme interpreter. And basically by having both of those, um, you can kind of have one build the other and be sure that they're able to build each other and, and escape that problem. Is that an accurate portrayal or, or am I missing something? Something like that. So I'm not, maybe I'm not completely up to date with the latest uh, changes, but the, yeah. So MES actually, M-E-S stands for Maxwell Equations of Software. And the, yeah, it's a scheme interpreter. And there's a MESCC on top of it, which is a C compiler, like you said, which is able to compile uh, TinyCC, which is a slightly bigger and more featureful C compiler. And roughly at some point, I forgot the details, but at some point we are able to compile an actual GCC uh, until we reach a modern GCC, including G++. Right. It starts by compiling TinyCC first, I think, which then itself can compile an older GCC, which can compile a newer GCC, and then we can get pretty much the whole system. Right, exactly. Um, so so this, is, this is actually no longer fiction. <laughs> it sounds like sci-fi, but uh, it's, it's becoming a reality. So uh, Yannicka pushed the work in, in a branch in Geeks, which means that so you're not getting that work if you use Geeks 1.0, but soonish, I don't know, maybe a, a couple of months from now, we'll be merging this in master, meaning that thanks to the work that has been done, instead of having this 500 megabyte binary, uh, binary seed, as they call it, we will have a reduced binary seed, which is like half of it. Uh, and that's that's already you know a significant improvement, and I think you know bootstrapping is not black and white. It's pretty much like you have to reduce as much as possible your your initial binary seeds, you know those big uh, opaque binaries, and that's already great progress. Now the thing is that the same problems happens every time you have a compiler, basically not just for the for the initial C compiler. So, for example, we have a Rust compiler, and Rust is itself written in Rust. So the, the normal way to, to build Rust is by using, by using the previous version of Rust. And you can see the problem. You have to have a whole chain of Rust versions if you want to be able to build from source. But even if you do that, it turns out that the, the oldest version of Rust that we have is not, I don't know, it's not people have investigated and we are not able to rebuild it the way it was done back then. So fortunately, uh, Danny, uh, a Geeks contributor, managed to, to build an, an old Rust using uh, an alternate implementation of Rust that's in C++. So that's that's just to say that it's another instance of the bootstrapping problem that's being addressed. Um, we have to do this, you know, for Haskell as well. We have to do this for OCaml. You know, there are lots of instances, but the, the bootstrappable.org website is very much about raising awareness about the issue. I mean, the, the, the Thompson attack is a 40-year-old problem, I think. 
And like you explained, it's it's pretty big deal. I mean, if you have that backdoor that propagates, that that's a serious issue. And only now are people, and when I say people, it's really a, a group of uh, brave hackers. Only now are they starting to to address this, and I'm really grateful that people like Yanaker are are working on this because that's that's really big deal. It's it's crazy that. You know, software people have forgotten about this problem <laughs> somehow. Awesome. So I guess now this might be a good time to transition to what do you think the future of the project is for geeks? Hmm. So we've been accumulating lots of ideas of things we wanted to do. And yeah, there there are you know, many areas where we want to make progress. So one of them, for example, is uh, software distribution. How do we distribute those binaries? So currently we have a build form that's used to distribute binaries to everyone. And we've offered as an option, um, the ability to download from a content distribution network, the CDN, which is, you know, uh, it's not not all that satisfactory. I mean, it's great in terms of performance and reliability. I guess that's that's why we we have this option. But it's it's not so great. And we'd like instead to have the option to distribute software in a peer-to-peer fashion. Uh, so in the past, we investigated a bit GNUnet. There was a, a Google Summer of Code project. And more recently, we started looking at IPFS, which is a you know a peer-to-peer storage um, mechanism. And we we discussed with the IPFS developers, and it seems to be a pretty good fit to distribute binaries. So my hope is that soon enough, you know, that's one of the of the thing we'll be working on. Soon, soon enough, hopefully, we'll be able to distribute binaries over IPFS, which should be uh, what. What about source? Do you think source will also be distributed over that form? Right. Yeah, probably because, uh, well, I mean, source and binaries are pretty much the same thing to geeks. You know, they're just <laughs> right. <laughs> so it doesn't really. Well, sort of right. But uh, but but I mean, the the real the real risk is if um, if we want geeks to be able to be this kind of archive of of software for for a long time, then. Then, uh, if one of the sites go, that's kind of the e- the evil hidden secret in geeks right now is that if like the the source disappears from this site, then then like there's no real way to get it back again. But if if we have a more content address system, then the entire network can help keep things alive, right? Oh, right, yeah, yeah. That that's uh, yeah, like like you say, source has to be available somehow. And I guess yeah, IPFS could help, but. Maybe it's not the ultimate solution to this problem because you know IPFS would probably store only popular content, so maybe source code would eventually vanish anyway. But we've been working on on this particular problem with Software Heritage. I don't know if you've heard about that um, initiative before, but there I have. But our our audience <laughs> right. So Software Heritage is about building a, a huge archive of source code. So basically taking everything from source code hosting sites and just archiving it forever, so to speak. And that's exactly what we need for Geeks. We need to have a, a stable archive uh, where we can always you know, get old source code, possibly. And to me, that looks like the, the right solution, you know, to have a... Um, you know, a non-profit taking care of ensuring that source code is archived. You know, it's pretty much like the internet archive, but for source code. And we already have support to fetch source code from software heritage, which means that normally if everything goes well and, you know, if upstream, if, if the upstream website vanishes, then we are able to get source code from software heritage. And that's that's pretty cool. So there are still some challenges to address. Like, for example, currently Software Heritage doesn't have precisely all the you know all the source code archive or all the commits that it refers to. So we're working with them to see how we could eventually ensure that they have precisely what we need. But uh, that's that sounds very promising. That that's again one of these post 1.0 tasks that I think we will be working on in the coming month. Okay. Uh, awesome. Uh, and 
I guess there's there. I mean, I guess there's a lot of opportunities in geeks. I mean, one of the things that I'm still interested in, and I I feel like we haven't, uh, and I think that there's a good chance that we'll be seeing more headway in the next uh, um, o- over the course of the next year. But um, I'd really like to see more on on server deployment, for instance, of of geeks. Uh, uh, and, and, you know, uh, uh, I guess there, uh, well, we'll, we'll see what happens over the next few months, but, uh, um, uh, I don't know. Do you have any thought, uh, is there anything else you want to talk about it for the future or for how people can get involved in geeks development? So, well, for the future, just to mention a few things. So like, like you're saying, there's distributed deployment. We'd like to be able to say, look, this is, this is a declaration of my operating system and I want to, to deploy it on, on, on a bunch of machines, you know, possibly with variants. And that's something that's hopefully going to happen. I mean, I hope we'll be able to work on it. There's a, uh, perhaps with Google Summer of Code, we'll be able to start working on it. That, that would be really great. And um, yeah, there are all other things we'd like to to look at. Like we've actually, when you know, working on gigs, we've started fiddling with the operating system lower layers, so to speak. And and there's a, a natural next step would be to start fiddling with the GNU herd because you know the GNU herd is actually something. It's an actual operating system. People don't realize they think it's just vaporware and that's that's. I mean. That's also true in a way, I guess, but it's also uh, an actual POSIX operating system that you can do things with, and it's very flexible. It gives users a lot of freedom. So it's very much in the same spirit as Gix, in that it's it's about giving users more freedom and more facilities. Uh, and so probably there will be something with Gix on, on GNU Herd, I hope so. Yeah, I hope so as well. I think that, as you said, a lot of people think it's vaporware, but I, um, I think you and I have both run, uh, heard at least in a testing environment at one point, and both been inspired by the project. Uh, um, so it does. It is a thing that boots and runs, but um, I think very few, if anybody, is using it from their day to day. But it, it could be really exciting. Uh, the ideas behind it are really powerful, and and I think right now we're seeing a real resurgence of interest in microkernels, uh, especially, uh, I mean, even, you know, the interest in L4 and, and even Google is interested in, in rolling out uh, microkernels, partly, I think, because of the how bad security is on monolithic kernels and kind of the classic Unix system. And, and, and I actually think that if we don't get a real community-oriented approach to uh, microkernels, we could be in a, a bad spot, personally. Yeah. Um, but uh, but anyway, I think that that yeah, that could be really exciting. So so why don't we talk about um, getting involved in doing development? Uh, I mean, so you mentioned that it's a a project that in, intends for people to be able to pick up and hack. And um, how much scheme does somebody have to know to contribute a Geeks package? It can be very little, I think. So I mean, people who started contributing. So most contributors initially write package definitions, right? Uh, the package, it's not there. So you end up writing the package definition. That's that's less usual today because there are almost 10,000 packages, but still, I mean, you know, sometimes you don't find the package that you need. And so to write package definitions, you really don't need to know much scheme. I mean, it's really, it could be XML or JSON. Uh, that's pretty cool. Uh, but then obviously when you start writing more complex package definitions or, you know, for complex pieces of software, then you start doing a little bit of scheme. And I think like, if you look at most contributors initially, they probably didn't know scheme at all. I would say uh, most of them, uh, but then you, you get into it and you start using, you know, that function and, and, and another thing and the module and stuff, and you, you get to learn about scheme. Uh, so it's it can be pretty incremental. That's been my experience as well. I mean, I, I started developing on, uh, I mean, I I'd actually wanted to contribute packages to distributions for a long time. And it's partly because doing a, a Git checkout of geeks and, uh, well, I wouldn't say it was so easy. It was actually much dramatically easier than I expected. Um, and I had never successfully gotten in a package before to any other distribution. And and mm. uh, um, I think what personally, 
one of the things I really like about the geeks community is how friendly it is to people who want to contribute. Um, so I, I, I appreciate the work that you, Ricardo, and others have done to try to keep the community a, a really friendly place. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, we're trying to do our best here. Uh, we have a code of conduct. We want to make sure that it's it's a good experience for anyone joining. That's yeah, that's the whole story. It's it should be a good experience. Otherwise, it's not worth it. <laughs> that's my opinion. Yep. Um, I agree. I agree. Um, all right. Well, I think we're getting towards uh, the point where we're we're going to wrap up. So, uh, I is there anything else you want to chat about before, or any shout outs you want to give, or anything before we wrap up? Yeah, I mean, speaking of contributing, so we, we discussed technical contributions and, you know, there are packages, there are system services that one might want to contribute or core things, but there are also many, you know, non-technical or less technical contributions that one can make. It could be translations, it could be artwork, websites, you know, taking care of the infrastructure. There are lots of things that people have been doing during all these years, so... If you want to join and you have skills in one specific area, I'm sure there there are tasks for you. <laughs> Sounds great. All right. Um, well, at that point, I think that we're going to wrap up. So uh, thanks, Ludo, for joining us on the show. It's been a, a real pleasure. Thank you. And if you wanted to, you know, communicate with us, uh, we are on Pound Libre Lounge on Freenode. We are at Libre Lounge on Floss.Social. And we're, if you want to go down, go da to the bird site, uh, we're at uh, Libre Lounge on Twitter. And you can uh, also reach out to us at, uh, I think it's show at LibreLounge.org. And otherwise also, uh, we'll see you all next time. All right, take care. Bye-bye. Thank you. You've been listening to Libre Lounge can find and subscribe to us at LibreLounge.org. This podcast is released under the Creative Commons Attribution Sharealike 4.0 International License. Our theme music is Bossa Nova by Joff, which is waved into the public domain under CC0 and which you can find on OpenGameArt.org. If you'd like to support Chris Weber's work on this and other user freedom projects, you can donate at patreon.com forward slash c-w-e-b-b-e-r. Thanks for listening. See you next time.